Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hello and welcome back to the Inside the Board Step 1 Study Smarter series. My name is Stuart Bryant and today I'm going to be going through a few genetics questions. I'll be reading them and helping dissect them for your gain. Genetics questions can have a certain flavor to them and hopefully I can explain some things to help you answer these questions when you see them on test day, as well as give you some tips for helping you study for step one. These questions are brought to you by a combination of stat pearls and exam circle, and I hope they're able to help give you some information and and are useful questions to you. This is our genetics week, and I'm hoping this material has been helpful for you so far. Uh, This is our third genetics episode, including first two, which was a mini episode and an excerpt from Crush Step 1. Later in the week, look for our Stat Pearls practice question rounds, which we'll just go over some random content uh, that we may find on Step 1 to kind of help keep you on your toes as well. As I've said previously, if you haven't, please take the time to subscribe to our podcast. It really helps us. And if you would be willing to leave us a rating, uh, that can help us improve our questions and our material that we're providing you as well. If you have the opportunity, please go to the Apple Store or Google Play and download the Inside the Boards app where you'll have access to our content uh, in terms of the podcast for free and can potentially get a subscription for the All Audio QBank. So without further ado, let's get into these questions for a bit. A 10-year-old male is brought to the clinic by his father, who is concerned about unsteady walking. He reports that over the past few years, the patient has exhibited progressive clumsiness in his gait. Initially, he seemed to experience unsteadiness in getting up from sitting down. Now he walks slowly and seems to be unbalanced. The patient reports that he otherwise feels fine, He denies any childhood illnesses or vision problems, and he only takes a daily multivitamin and over-the-counter melatonin for sleep. His father notes that some of his distant relatives have some sort of degenerative disease. On physical exam, vitals are stable and cranial nerves are grossly intact. There is 5 out of 5 strength in the upper extremity and 4 out of 5 strength in the lower extremity. Vibratory and joint positioning sense are slightly diminished in the lower extremity, as are deep tendon reflexes. What are the chances that the patient's biological sister, who is age 4, is a carrier for this disease, assuming that neither parents are symptomatic? Is it A. 0% B. 25% C. 50% or D, 75%. So this is a 10-year-old who comes in with a trouble, I guess with trouble getting up, and now they're experiencing more and more problems with unsteadiness. And then there's this quote about having distant relatives with degenerative disease. So that kind of language can really push you to think that this is going to be something genetic. As well, you see that on exam, they have weakness in their lower extremities and decreased um, sensation. 
Then the question totally pivots from the patient and says, what about their sister? What's the likelihood that they have the same disease, even though neither of the parents do? So uh, first we had to determine what this disease is. And in general, you know, when you're seeing this unsteady gait, um, you're thinking more like cerebellar signs. And um, the ataxia and decreased tone may lead you to think that this is Friedrich ataxia. Uh, So that's what this patient has. And we're trying to determine whether or not his sister has it as well. Um, So just a, a bit on Friedrich ataxia is it's a degenerative disease of the cerebellum and spinal cord. The presentation is ataxia, decreased vibratory and positional sense proprioception, lower extremity weakness, and loss of deep tendon reflexes. It is uh, an autosomal recessive disease, which is why in this case neither of the parents would have it. So in order for this child to have it, the patient must have both knockouts and therefore both parents must be carriers. The question is then asking you, what's the likelihood that the sister will be a carrier? And if we remember our Punnett square, our little two by two, we have the dominance in one box, we have two of the carriers in two of the other boxes, and we have one um, box with just the recessives. So that's the classic setup for that Punnett square, and then you think, how many of these are going to be for the carrier type? And that's going to be half of them, right? So in this case, you may see that 25% of offspring have the potential to have a disease, 75% do not, and 50% are carriers. And that's sort of a, you can take those numbers and go into any of the recessive diseases and, and see whether or not that works. To get the answer to this question, uh, which is C, 50%, you need to know that it's an autosomal recessive disease, and that means both parents are carriers. Therefore, if they are to both pass down one of the genes, there's a 50% chance that another offspring or this patient's sister would also be a carrier. So the next question here is a 49-year-old male presents to his physician complaining of a black growth on his scalp. Upon physical exam, the physician discovers an asymmetric black patch that measures 8 millimeters across the scalp. The patient claims that the patch slowly grew over the past two months. The physician is considering prescribing venerifenib, which is a drug that inhibits the BRAF V600E kinase. Which of the following tumor markers is most likely present in this patient. Is it A, CA153, B, CD117, C, TTF1, or D, S100? So this patient's coming in with a black growth on their scalp. They give you some characters, characteristics of it that you see that it's 8 millimeters, referring to the size. You see that it's a black patch. You see that it's been changing over the past two months. 
those are all buzzing at trying to get you to say that this is a melanoma. Physician is looking at giving vimerafenib, which will inhibit the BRAF5600E kinase and hopefully help treat the melanoma. So this is a classic case of melanoma. You know, you see the asymmetry, you see the large size, the change color. So what, I guess, are the markers for melanoma? And two common markers in this case are going to be S100 and HMB45. Knowing that those go with like keratin and uh, skin conditions can be helpful. So just a little bit about HMB45. This is a HMB stands for human melanoma black, and it is a characteristic marker in melanoma. So knowing that the M in HMB stands for melanoma can really help you here. And then, you know, it's pretty sensitive for melanomas, I think, around in the 90s. Uh, I'm sure that changes over time, too. And then S100. S100 is normally seen in neural cells. So you think like nerve tumors, but you will also see it in some melanomas as well, though it's more classic for things like neurofibromas, ronomas, uh, nerve sheath tumors. In terms of CD117, one of the other answers, that's going to be uh, for stromal tumors, like gastrointestinal tumors. TTF1 is the thyroid transcription factor 1. It's associated with thyroid cancer. And then CA15-3, that's a, a breast cancer marker. And then if you think another one of these good markers like CA125, uh, that's pretty typical in ovarian cancer. So Having all these markers and kind of having them fit with certain diseases is going to be really important for step one because they're going to want to know what the marker is. And it's going to be, while the reality may be a little more nuanced, whether or not the marker is there, the step one is not like board exam is not going to, you know, really get into the amount of expression and What's the differential based on how much of this marker is there or not? Uh, so you don't really need to worry about getting in the weeds there. So the kind of summing this up, the patient has a melanoma. S100 and HMB45 are going to be positive in this patient. Uh, S100 was answer choice D. So that's the answer here. The next question is, a Caucasian couple who recently immigrated from Russia comes to your office for their first prenatal visit. They tell you they have a two-year-old son who's been hospitalized twice for pneumonia complicated by staph aureus in the past. They have noticed recurrent foul-smelling stools with specks of oil when changing his diaper. What is the likelihood that their unborn child will be affected with the same disease? Is it A, 100%, B, 50%, C, 25%, or D, the same as the population. So this doesn't give you a lot of information as to what's going on with this child. You know they're coming from Russia, and they're not giving you a history, but you also aren't sure about vaccination, that kind of stuff, what other like infectious diseases they might have. 
And that is something you should take to the bank if they're coming from out of the United States. Their vaccination history is questionable. And they're here for a prenatal visit. And they also have a two year old son who has Staph aureus pneumonia, it looks like. And then they have the foul smelling stools with oil and diapers. You really have to make a jump here to get knowing that if you like Staph aureus pneumonia, is actually very common, a very common kind of pneumonia in children with CF. There is a, a change from Staph aureus to uh, Pseudomonas as patients get older, but typically patients below their teenage years get Staph aureus pneumonia and then it later becomes Pseudomonas pneumonia kind of around the 13 and up mark. So knowing that this patient has had pneumonia, they're a two-year-old with pneumonia, and then they're having these foul-smelling stools, um, you're going to want to think of cystic fibrosis. Uh, as I was saying, the pathogen you might think of is pseudomonas, but that's really for more um, teenage and older patients. So the question then becomes, what's the likelihood that the unborn child will have the disease you had to know that cystic fibrosis then is an autosomal recessive disease and may be common in Caucasians. I think the gene is the CFTR gene. And we typically think of the Punnett square here again. You're going go to go back to the Punnett square. You're going to say, there's one child that has this disease. So mom and dad must both be carriers. If mom and dad are both carriers for this autosomal recessive disease, the chance that a child will have the disease again means they must both pass on their recessive gene. And that means that the patient is going to have a 25% chance of developing the disease from their parents. So a little bit here is this uh, recurrent episodes of pneumonia complicated by Staph aureus and steatorrhea are signs of cystic fibrosis. CF is an autosomal recessive disease that's most common in Caucasians and is caused by the mutation in the CFTR gene, which encodes for the ATP-powered chloride channel. In early childhood, CF is associated with Staph aureus bacterial pneumonia, while in adolescence, CF is typically associated with Pseudomonas bacterial pneumonia. CF is screened for in the United States but since this patient recently immigrated, the patient may not have been diagnosed yet. Since CF follows an autosomal recessive inheritance pattern and the couple's son has CF, both parents must be heterozygous carriers. And like I was saying, since inheritance of CF alleles from the mother and father to independent events, the probability that the mother will pass on her CF allele and the probability that her father will pass on the allele is one half for each. You multiply one half by one half and you get one fourth. That's the mathematical way to do it. That's probably better if you're doing multiple generations. It really helps to do it that way because then you're not going to confuse how many, like what the numbers are going to be. But for this like one generation thing, it's easy to just use like a Punnett square in your head and think about the, the different boxes depending on their percentages. So I guess, you know, recurrent episodes of pneumonia you see with Staph aureus and steatorrhea, you will see what the 
um, cystic fibrosis children mentioned that it's autosomal recessive. That's how we're getting to the answer. The ATP-powered chloride channel is an important test fact for how the, dis the disease um, causes problems. And the probability that the child with two heterozygous carriers will be affected is a quarter or 25%. The next question here is a 21-year-old man with a past medical history of neonatal jaundice presents to his physician with signs of anemia. Lab tests reveal that his reticulocyte count is higher than normal and a peripheral blood smear shows degmocytes. What is the mode of inheritance of the disease this patient most likely has? Is it A, autosomal recessive, B, autosomal dominant, C, X-linked recessive, or D, X-linked dominant? Okay, so here again is another, we have to determine the disease so that we can get that the inheritance pattern of it. You see a young man who has jaundice as a child. Now they're coming in and they're anemic. Then they, they do a smear and they show degmocytes. Degmocytes is a fancy term meant to confuse you. And I've, I've probably talked about this in the past when you get those fancy terms, they probably are just synonyms for something that you're very familiar with. And if you can take the time to find some of these, it will actually really in increase your, your likelihood of not being confused uh, when you're taking these tests. So a degmocyte is a bite cell. And knowing that they have bite cells, a high reticulocyte count, and they came in with neonatal jaundice, really changes your picture for what you're thinking this disease is. And I, I think you can get at the, the, the fact that this is probably G6PD deficiency if you know that they have bite cells. So if this patient has G6PD deficiency, now we need to know what the, the inheritance of that is. So in that case, this is kind of getting at the some things you just have to know. They are X-linked recessive. By being X-linked recessive, mom may not have the disease, and dad may not have the disease, but mom can be a carrier. And then they have the mom and dad have a boy who has the X recessive gene, and then they have the likelihood of having the disease. So this patient most likely has G6PD deficiency. It's X-linked recessive. The increased reticulocyte count suggests that hemolytic anemia is occurring. Um, the presence of bite cells on a peripheral smear points toward the diagnosis. And the, the history of neonatal jaundice just kind of supports this. Kind of the pathogenesis of this disease is the, the G6PD deficiency means that uh, the red blood cells are more likely to be damaged by oxidizing agents or stress. And one of the other things that you can see on peripheral smear are Heinz bodies. And that's actually where the bite cells come from a lot of the time is the, the cells get partially eaten um, because of their Heinz bodies. Macrophages or monocytes or something takes a bite out of them. So the bite cell is, you know, has that characteristic chomp out of the membrane. And like I said, the 
the Heinz body is kind of really related to this disorder. Um, you see that Heinz body and then it goes through the spleen, macrophages and inflammatory cells basically try to remove that uh, damaged part of the, the red blood cell membrane. And that kind of leads to your characteristic bite. Things that can cause uh, the oxidation and lead to a hemolytic anemia can just be uh, stress or the other thing that we really think about are sulfa drugs like sulfasalazine, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, and then uh, dapsone is another a, another good choice that could cause a, a reaction for patients. Knowing that the G6PD inheritance is X-linked recessive um, can really help you identify this on test day and understanding that the neonatal jaundice and the bite cells or degmocytes. The next question is a 51-year-old female is being evaluated by her physician for complaints of increased joint pain in her hands. She recently reported symptoms of menopause and was diagnosed with diabetes mellitus approximately five months ago. On physical exam, she is found to have scleral icterus, lungs clear to auscultation, heart sounds normal, and skin is found to have a bronze tone. Which of the following is associated with the most likely diagnosis responsible for this patient's history and presentation? Is it A, they're positive for HLA-B8, B, they have a recessive mutation in the C282Y gene. C, they have decreased serum ceruloplasmin. Or D, they have antihistone antibodies. So a new onset diabetes patient is something that you have to work up fairly often. And when they're older adults, could be thinking that could be just age-related or weight-related, but if you're noticing other symptoms or it just seems to be very fast onset, you have to kind of raise your eyebrow and think, what else could it be? On exam, this patient also has this bronze tone and they're icteric. Um, with that information, you might be able to take that and add it with the joint pain and the new onset diabetes and say, oh, this patient probably has hemochromatosis. So the next question then is, uh, which, which of the following answer choices is associated with hemochromatosis? And that is the answer choice B, the recessive mutation in the C282Y gene. This is commonly associated with hemochromatosis, there are other genes that you can find, but that's a good one to know for hemochromatosis. Another mutation is the H62D mutation, and you might see that as a, another potential option. Uh, if you were to have the same kind of question set up without the C282Y gene. Answer choice A is the, so HLA-B8. Uh, while there are lots of associations with HLA-B, you might see it with Addison's disease, which could give you that tan look, uh, myasthenia or Graves' disease. That's actually a really good distractor with Addison's disease because 
they're going to have a, a Addisonian crisis potentially, and they may have that tan look. You could be confused uh, by the, those two options if you were confusing hemochromatosis and Addison's in your head. Answer choice C, or a decreased serum ceruloplasmin, uh, that's going to be Wilson's disease. Uh, that's going to be have more neurological signs. So answer choice D, an antihistone antibody, uh, that's the one where you're going to see it with drug-induced autoimmune disorders. Typically, these patients would be the ones you're seeing in a, as like a, a new rheumatology patient who began taking medication, is now having these immune flares, uh, and they're trying to figure out why, uh, why they now have lupus or something, and the, the reality is they were put on a drug that created the problem, and they need to be off that medication. So like that could be another good option for a patient coming in, and we're not sure why they have lupus, and they're on these medications, and then you see the, the antibody is positive. You had to think about that being a, a distractor for they, they really don't have lupus. They may have uh, a drug reaction. So one of the key points about this question is that uh, females who develop hemochromatosis actually start to see more symptoms around the time of menopause. This is because the iron overload is controlled for during menstruation with the iron loss. Uh, and once that starts to slow down, there is progression of the disease. It's also important to recognize that hemochromatosis is associated with joint arthritis, particularly in the hands. And you may see the classic triad of cirrhosis, diabetes, and bronze skin. It's associated with the C282Y gene and the H63D gene, and is also associated with the HLA-A3. So any three of those markers could lead you toward hemochromatosis. So the next question is, a woman brings her eight-year-old son to the pediatrician because of a recurrent otitis media and sinusitis. On physical exam, the pediatrician notes that the boy has a long, large face with protruding ears, he's shy, and has limited eye contact with the doctor, and the mom says he has an intellectual disability. What abnormality would a geneticist be most likely to see in the boy's DNA? Is it A, a congenital microdeletion of the short arm of chromosome 5, B, a congenital microdeletion of the long arm of chromosome 7, C, repeats of the CAG bases, or D, repeats of the CGG bases. So this patient has recurrent infections and a long face with protruding ears, as well as intellectual disability. Now this is easier with a picture, but particularly the long face, long chin, and the protruding ears might make you think of a fragile X syndrome. And fragile X is one of those X-linked dominant disorders related to trinucleotide repeats. And that is related to the CGG base repeats along the FMR1 gene. So what does the fragile X patient really look like? They have 
intellectual disability and or could have autism. You'll see a large face with a large jaw, large chin, uh, everted ears, large ears. Uh, you may see that they have low muscle tone. Uh, on their uh, cardiac exam, they may have mitral valve prolapse. A genital exam will be positive for prepubertal macroorchidism. These children are typically picked up later, uh, and they, they seem, can seem pretty normal until puberty when they really kind of hit that time where they're supposed to have more normal social development and they just don't seem right, and they're continuing to have these recurrent otitis media and sinusitis infections. So they, they just present a little bit later sometimes. Answer choice A was a congenital microdeletion in the short arm of chromosome 5. That is for Cretu-Chat or Cretu-Cat uh, syndrome, uh, in which you see a uh, microcephaly with a intellectual disability, and they have that high-pitched crying or cat-like meowing. You also see epicanthal folds, and they may have a ventricular septal defect uh, on exam. B a congenital microdeletion of the long arm of chromosome 7 goes with Williams syndrome. And Williams syndrome are noted to have these elfin-like faces. They have intellectual disability and are known to have a high calcium or hypercalcemia due to abnormal sensitivity to vitamin D. Uh, they have really good verbal and social skills, so they're extremely friendly and talkative to strangers. And you, you can almost make the diagnosis by seeing their faces and seeing how they interact with people. And that's caused by the, the deletion of the short arm of chromosome 7. And then the answer choice C, or the repeats of the trinucleotide CAG, um, that's related to Wilson's disease. And those are a progressive uh, neurological disorder where you see patients anywhere in their late, early 20s to 50s. They slowly worsen with um, more and more uh, instances of chorea, or like Huntington's chorea, so like a dancing-like cursory, athetosis, aggression, depression, and early dementia. So the, the takeaway here is that um, Patients with Fragile X often have these recurrent infections, they're atypical social development, and their long face with wide turned out ears. And it's related to trinucleotide repeats of the CGGs in the FMR1 gene. The next question is a 42-year-old female with a past medical history significant for medullary thyroid carcinoma presents to the clinic with a two-month history of episodes of sudden-onset headache, sweating, and palpitations. Her vital signs at today's visit are 91 degrees Fahrenheit, a heart rate of 86, respirations of 16, and blood pressure of 130 over 82. On physical exam, she's taller than the average, with long limbs that appear to be longer than her height. She has several yellow-white painless nodules on her tongue. What syndrome is associated with her clinical presentation? Is it A, MIN2B, B, MIN2A, C, MIN1, or D, Marfan syndrome?
So this patient comes in with a history of thyroid cancer. Now they have onset, new onset of headaches uh, with sweating and palpitations. And they are marfanoid based on their description of being taller with their uh, long arms being potentially longer than their height. To add to that, they added painless yellow-white nodules on the tongue. And they're trying to get you at the, the cluster of patients or cluster of, of a presentation for thyroid carcinoma, pheochromocytoma, and marfanoid habitus, which you can point to being a part of MEN2B. You know, this is a, a tough question considering that uh, they threw in all the other multiple endocrine neoplasia uh, options, so that made it a little bit harder. So let's talk about those a little bit. MEN1 is the P's, uh, so I think of the, the PPP for MEN1, and that's the pituitary tumors, uh, pancreatic endocrine tumors, and parathyroid tumors, and that's associated with the MEN1 tumor suppressor gene. MEN2A is the medullary thyroid carcinoma and pheochromocytoma that you see with MEN2B as well. The only difference is, is they have the parathyroid hyperplasia. Parathyroid hyperplasia, medullary thyroid carcinoma, and pheochromocytoma are associated with MEN2A. MEN2A is comprised of the parathyroid hyperplasia, so you may see hypercalcemia, medullary thyroid carcinoma, and the pheochromocytoma. It's associated with the RET gene mutation. And then back to MEN2B, it is also a RET mutation, but this time it causes medullary thyroid carcinoma, pheochromocytoma, and marfanoid habitus. You may also note that oral mucus, um, mucosal like neuromas, or these yellow-white painless nodules on her tongue may be a sign, but it's not typically given with the triad of three diseases that you think of. This syndrome is an autosomal dominant, and there will be, so there will be family members with it as well. Patients with marfanoid body habitus, uh, though they can have just Marfan syndrome, with other clinical characteristics of cancers and endocrine problems, you should steer away from Marfan syndrome. So this is a easy place to get points on a, on a board exam. Everything about multiple endocrine neoplasia you should take up and down and try to get as many little facts as possible about. You know, once you're able to determine the diagnosis from those three things, then you need to be able to go in and say what gene has been done, what's the inheritance, or what should you do first? Because these are all, are all good questions that the, the board exam could dance around these presentations here. So like, you know, maybe they'll present a patient with new onset headaches, sweating and palpitations, and then they have a marfanoid habitus and they're wanting to know what other problem do we need to check for them? And that would be to look at their thyroid, for instance. And, you know, there's, there's so many different ways that they can come about it. They just love this kind of material because it adds the, it gives them the ability to write a lot of questions with a very similar presentation. The next question is a three-year-old girl was brought to your office because her mother thinks she's behaving abnormally over the past few months. 
Past medical history reveals that the child has exhibited parallel play at age two, in addition to pointing at things and running around during the office visit. At age one, the child was beginning to stand alone and put her on her own clothes. She would also say mama and dada. Vaccination history shows that the child is up to date on her immunizations and has had no adverse side effects. On physical exam, you find that the child is not able to go up or down stairs and has difficulty running. When asked what the child's name is, she stares absently and is speechless. While further discussing how long these changes have been going on with the mother, you note that the child exhibits a characteristic hand motion and almost falls over while trying to exit the room. What syndrome do these findings increase your index of suspicion for? Is it A, Tourette syndrome, B, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, C, autism spectrum disorder, or D, Rett syndrome? I like to think these questions are a little more difficult than they may come across because you've got a child here that is not really interacting with you. Maybe they're not playing exactly the way you think they should. And in this case, you may see that they look like they kind of regressed some. The patient was following all, all signs of growth. And you see at age one, they're doing the right things. At age two, they're doing the right things. And now suddenly at age three, they don't seem to be doing the right things anymore. And that can lead you to, to think of a number of things. But in this case, with the falling over, the loss of stability, and the, the hand waving, you begin to think about Rett syndrome. So when you see a child with Rett syndrome, this is it's an X-linked disorder. They're going to show signs of the disease around, around age three, but could it be anywhere between one and four? And you'll see regression. I think regression is typically the best finding. They'll lose abilities to speak as well. They'll start having more intellectual disability where they seemed normal before. They won't, they'll walk funny. They'll have difficulty walking straight. They'll have ataxia. And then they'll wring their hands or move them about oddly. So most cases of Rett syndrome are due to a mutation in the MECP2 gene. And like I said, this is an X-linked gene. Uh, so you're going to see it more in females. Children often show signs of it, like I said, uh, around the age of three or four. So when you see this patient, you're going to want to do a genetic workup for them to make sure that that is the case. Um, Tourette syndrome, more likely to be older. Uh, you'll see ticks and a persistence of the ticks that probably really bother the patient. ADHD is just completely different where you'll see a patient that's going to be in more talkative, more interactive, more outgoing, more energetic. They're going to be bouncing off the walls. If they look ataxic, it's because they're running around so much that they're just falling over because they, they feel like that's the way they want to go right now. So while autism could have some social problems and you could see that early on, they typically do well early and you don't see this characteristic regression as much. You just see them kind of falling behind uh, as they get older compared to other children. Also, most of the time, autism children are very smart and intellectual disability is less of a problem. While you may see like habits with autism patients, the ataxia and the hand wringing are 
are more characteristic of something like Rett syndrome. So the last one here is a 55-year-old with Down syndrome. He was brought to the physician by his family after complaints of gradual memory loss and getting lost in the neighborhood over the last year. Which of the following contributes to this disease process? Is it A, presenilin 1, B, apolipoprotein E4 or ApoE4, C, apolipoprotein E2 or ApoE2, or D, amyloid precursor protein? So a important testing fact for step one is going to be knowing Down syndrome in and out uh, because there are a lot of different questions you can come at from different age perspectives and different characteristics of their diseases. In this case, we have an older adult male Down syndrome patient who's now having memory problems. If you know that Down syndrome has a higher likelihood of having an early onset Alzheimer's disease, that could lead you in the right direction. But now you need to know what causes that to occur. As we've gotten better at taking care of these patients, they begin to get older. And you may see this more often. The incidence is about one in three patients uh, around age 50, and then two in three patients by the age 60. This is really because amyloid precursor protein is coded for on chromosome 21. And when you have the extra chromosome, you have an extra accumulation of the protein. Other things to keep in mind, like I was saying that there's a number of ways they could test you on. What's the disease presentation look like? How is the disease related to meiosis? How is the disease related to inheritance? How is the disease related to Robertsonian translocations? How is it related to Alzheimer's? And uh, another important one is how it's related to cancer risk. Down syndrome patients have an increased chance of having AML and as well as ALL. So all these important things to keep in mind make it a really high yield disease to, to take the time to learn what are the consequences of it further down the road. Of these other answer choices, APOE4 is the, the one that is most likely correlated with uh, early onset Alzheimer's disease in a standard population. So that's a good distractor in that case. Let me talk a little bit about Alzheimer's disease. It's a neurodegenerative disorder where patients get worse over time as they age. There's many etiologies. It's multifactorial, but there is a strong disposition to genetic influence on this, especially with early onset or familial. Those typically are caused in the early ages. So like you'll see these more likely before people turn 65 and it's caused by autosomal dominant genes that mess with the breakdown of beta amyloid protein. So the presenilin genes and amyloid precursor proteins, if those are altered and you see a higher level of beta amyloid, they're more likely to have this disease. Uh, normally, presenilin forms a complex with these proteins and allows it to be cleaved up and broken down. So that breakdown product of protein complexes from amyloid leads to like these beta amyloid plaques and that really contributes to the disease from a pathology standpoint. And then as I said earlier, the apolipoprotein 4 
is really more about a sporadic like Alzheimer's disease and it's really not as linked to being familial. All right, that wraps things up. Thank you for listening to the episode today. Uh, I really appreciate it. I know it's a lot of content. Hopefully it, you found it really helpful and kind of complementing the other episodes we've been doing this week. Uh, look for our practice question rounds later in the week uh, powered by Stat Pearls to help give you some general content as well. And since I've already been over everything, uh, let's talk about a little bit about next week. We'll be moving into embryology, uh, another one of these nebulous topics. And hopefully I can help provide some information to help you study for step one for embryology topics as well. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend that's also studying for step one. That may be a huge help for them and give them a, a way to study while they're on the go as well. So you know we're taking previous seasons of our Study Smarter series podcast and we're cataloging them into easy-to-digest playlists and placing them on the Inside the Boards app, which I recommend you download to get the best uh, user interface for digesting our content. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a happy time studying. <laughs>